Hello and welcome back to the Changeover Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, along with my co-host. Uh, do you prefer Ben or Benjamin? Oh, Ben's fine. Ben's fine. Oh, okay, perfect. Uh, along with my co-host, Benjamin, we're back again to bring you tennis news surrounding the ATP Tour. We're going to be talking about Battle of the Backboards in the Australian Open uh, 2021 final. We're also going to crown the inaugural bracket challenge winner, and we're going to have some fun trivia for you. So with that, how are you doing today, Ben? I am doing good. Thank you very much. Great to be back here. Um, and I'm also very excited to kick this episode off with a little bit of trivia for you, Evan. Got a couple questions that I don't think are too crazy, but yeah, I think we'll start things off with the first round of opening trivia before we dive in today's activities. It's that time of the podcast already. Here we go. It is. <laughs> Always mixing up the segments around here. I know. So, diving right into it. <laughs> The first question, starting from 2010, so 2010 and afterwards, gotcha. which player has the worst record in Australian Open finals matches? Um, Hints and questions are allowed. In, in finals, that has to be Andy Murray, right? Oh, very good. Very good. Nailed it. <laughs> It is Andy Murray. He's 0-5 in Australian Open Finals. 0-5. The first one being in 2010, he lost to Roger Federer. All four after Mm. that have been losses to Djokovic in 2011, 2013, 2014, and 2016. I forgot about that Federer match. I remember him losing to Djokovic a lot. I also didn't know about that one, or at least I had forgotten as well. But yeah, the Djokovic losses are, are pretty crazy. Okay. The second question. In the <laughs> thanks, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I was waiting for that. At the 2008 Australian Open, this unseeded player ended up making the finals and became famous for knocking off multiple, in fact, four seeded players during his run. Do you know who this player is that made the run to the finals, was unseeded, and beat four seeds along the way? Yeah, I do know this one, too. I'm going to sound stupid if I miss this. Um, that was Joe Willie Sanga, right? Exactly. Yeah. You got it again. I did not. Um, I just know him and Djokovic in 08 because that was Djokovic's first title. But I didn't realize he was unseated at the time. Yeah, that's, you know, what I learned on the Internet, apparently. So <laughs> it's looking like he was unseated. I was thinking I would at least have to tell you it was a Frenchman. But that was pretty impressive. You got them both without much problem so hopefully the session at the end will be a little more challenging but yeah Tsonga in that 2008 run knocked off Murray, Gasquet, Yuzny and Rafa on his way to the final so oh wow was a long time ago but um yeah we'll get into Tsonga's I think he's making a comeback in some of these 250s now so it will be interesting to see him back on the circuit but yeah you're two for two so far on trivia so great work thank you all right so Now we're going to move into our next segment of this week. Um, We're going to take a look at our inaugural bracket challenge that we did as a part of the 2021 Australian Open. So essentially, this first run of the bracket challenge had a really, really wide field of competitors consisting of the two of us and my wife, Samantha. So, you know, it was pretty tough competition this year. We had a lot of people involved. To give you an idea, 
we were not able to find, you know, uh, one of those fancy online bracket challenges. I personally am not very good at betting websites or anything like that. So I did the next best thing I know of and made an Excel spreadsheet um, <laughs> consisting of each of the rounds. And basically round one was worth one point for every player you got correct. And then I just kept adding a point all the way up to the final. The final ended with seven points. And then if if you got the champion, you got a bonus 10 points. So yeah. I, I'm sure the real online brackets have some method to the madness for how they assign points at certain rounds. And I, you're probably supposed to get a little bit more advantage for the obscure seeds that you get correct or incorrect in the first two rounds. I didn't really give us that at all. So if you didn't perform well early on... <laughs> or you did, you still didn't get rewarded for calling upsets or anything like that. But with that being said, you know, we've got a first, second, and third place this year. And third place goes to you, Evan. So congratulations on uh, the first bronze of the bracket challenge. You ended with 174 points. You did get the champion correct, which means you got the 10-point bonus. I got the 10-point bonus. Yes. Didn't help um, at all. (laughs) <laughs> no, we also got the 10-point bonus, so <laughs> that ended up being a wash for everybody involved. Um, as far as I can see, you performed pretty well in the quarterfinals. Um, unfortunately, your score continually declined after the first round, um, <laughs> and I think, you know, it, it was similar for me, too. In the end, it came down to the difference of a couple rounds, like in the third and fourth round. Um, yeah, and I think you had some picks, you know, where... The guy fell out early on and then I don't know you maybe you have some thoughts as to what this third place victory means to you well thank you for the bronze it's an honor to podium in my first bracket challenge so I'll take that (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah first round did not do me any favors and I will take a lot of the blame for that because when I was doing the first round I kind of just willy-nilly picked here and there based on past performance who I knew was in good form and didn't give a whole lot of in-depth thought <laughs> to that first round. Uh, likewise, pretty much in the second. And then we can get into how much thought I put into <laughs> into deeper matches. But <laughs> I really dug a hole there at the beginning that I was not, I never really poised myself to get out from. So we're going to take this as a learning opportunity here. Team Evan fans out there, if you're out there, we're going to come back stronger next time. <laughs> The French Open, I have That's I, great to hear. I have good feelings about the French Open because that is the wild, wild west of Grand Slam tournaments. I think Karatsev's going to beat Rafa. That's what I'm going with. That's but what you're I'm going definitely with. Team Evan. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm rooting for you in the next one. I I was managed to take the silver here, so I got second place. If we look at the, the very quick breakdown. Essentially, I only had seven more points than you in the first round, six more than you in round two, and you actually beat me in round three, and that's where it started to get a little bit different, but so you were at 174, I ended at 212, the main difference being the second the second half of the tournament. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit, a couple matches, I guess, in the first and second rounds where we had different picks, or where, frankly, there was like some unlucky retirements and things like that, too, that affected right. our draws in different ways but that's that's how it goes you can never really predict those things so i mean all in all i'm okay with that i was happy to get the final predicted as far as it was but the problem was like the rest of the the rest of the bracket except for djokovic and medvedev was pretty jacked up for me so 
I also got the 10 point championship bonus. So that was great. And um, yeah, then we have Samantha. She is the inaugural victor. So she came out on top of this three person competition. She finished with 224 points. She, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the numbers here and she won pretty much every single round except for the final. She oh also had goodness. Rafa in the final, I think. So there I got one, one extra pick over her, but it didn't matter at that point. She right. won the first round. Like we said last time, purely based on the seeds and the way that people's names sounded, what she thought, you know, looked good there. She shouldn't have told me her secrets because next time I'm going with, you know, Kokonakis, go deep. <laughs> <laughs> Or, yeah, or I would also pick. <laughs> I don't, maybe he's retired. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he coached Federer within the last five years. Great. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think coconuts would. <laughs> uh, I never realized how close coconuts and coconuts is. That's pretty funny. But um, coconuts. <laughs> yeah, I got Lubchik so, yeah. and uh, Ivan. Um, <laughs> Ivan Lizovich in in the final. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. You just picked the coaches, the two yep. players who the two best players who their coaches were. Yeah, that's not bad though. I mean, you could put Uncle Tony in there too. He'd probably have a shot. Uncle Tony. <laughs> uh, we'll go over to the women's side. I'll put Darren Cahill in there. Hey, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Put the German guy that coached Jennifer Brady or Jenny Brady, Jen uh, Jennifer. Jen- uh, yeah, I think she prefers Jennifer. Yeah, and I'll exactly. thank you to get yeah. that right. anyways that's the bracket challenge it's where things are at every i think the the big positives everybody got the 10 point championship bonus i was only 12 points behind the lead you were more than that and you know things can only go up from here you know what i will say i did i didn't speak too much towards the tail end of my bracket and i know i talked about it last week i had rublev in the final which was a very um out of the blue pick the other ones weren't crazy. I had Nadal. I had team in there, and neither of them made it. So I really only had Djokovic in the semifinals there. But I always had someone to root for until Rublev went out. <laughs> but even though I got down early, I was always like, well, there's still a chance because I could really gain some ground if he actually pulls it out for me. Same with Berrettini. I had him going over Sitsipas, and obviously he pulled out with the abdominal injury. So that didn't help my cases at all. But I had a couple people I was thinking, eh, well, if I goes my way on a couple of picks and then i could be right back in it but it just didn't pan out for this tournament that one was tricky with berrettini and yeah the rublev pick you know that was just a wild card for you i still don't think it was unwarranted i think there you know is a realistic scenario but you definitely were defying the head-to-head record on that one against anybody else it would have been a better pick but the fact that he had to play medvedev who is essentially the bane of his existence then um wasn't the smartest pick but yeah you know what? It's more fun to take chances and take shots. That's exactly right. Maybe in the future we can do the bracket challenge, you know, the logical one and then the emotional bracket challenge. Who you really want to pick. Yeah. Then I'm just going to pick a bunch of who, random who people. Djokovic is going to lose in the first yeah. round. It's going to be crazy every time. He's losing the first round. Kratsev <laughs> is winning the entire thing. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> Lubchitz is going to get a wild card come through. <laughs> And just destroy the field. <laughs> I'm going to put Michael Moe. I'm just going to rearrange my bracket and put Michael Moe versus Zverev in the Adidas tank tops just because everybody knows <laughs> Michael Moe is yeah. 15 times more jacked than Zverev in that tank top. <laughs> Zverev's tank top. 
I'm nowhere near as fit as any of these guys, but man, I feel like Zverev could have pulled the tank top off until he saw that Michael Moe was also playing in that tank top. I would have been switching to a shirt yeah. immediately thereafter. Not not a great look for him. Moment of silence for the Zverev tank top. I'm not sure we're ever going to see that again. <laughs> okay, so let's piggyback off of our brackets and talk a little bit about the Australian Open final. When we're uh, at the time of recording this, it happened just last night. I set my alarm for four o'clock in the morning. I was a little crusty eyed getting out of bed, not super happy about it, but I got up. It was it crusty. it had all it had all the makings of a blockbuster final. There was so much talk around. Could this be the time that Djokovic gets dethroned on his home court? He's won eight of these titles. He's never lost an Australian Open final. Medvedev had been on a 20 match win streak and he had beaten i forget the number but he had beaten over half of those 20 wins were players in the top 10 because it included the atp finals and then he won the finals in paris as well yeah i think it's 12 wins or something like yeah, that that's right insane. yeah over, yeah over 50 percent. so he was coming in, top 10, in right probably the best form of anybody even even more better form than Djokovic and I think that's where a lot of the speculation came in from in terms of could this be the the time that he gets dethroned but once again we see the power of the big three in Grand Slam finals he didn't even put up a fight Uh, he went down in straight sets I got through one cup of coffee which was just enough to irritate me because I had I had another half thing of ground beans to make my second cup but I didn't get that far so all I did was wire myself enough to where I had to watch cringe compilation videos on YouTube for the next hour to put me back to sleep because I was already (laughs) wide awake and the final was done at like 5 30 in the morning (laughs) but anyways I digress So let's get into a little bit more of the analysis of this match. Ben, what were your overall kind of impressions on the absolute just clinic that Djokovic put on against Medvedev here? Yeah, so over here in Germany, it wasn't so severe. I think the match started at like 9.30 or 9.40 a.m., so it was kind of a nice leisurely morning activity that we could indulge in. And yeah, I don't... So before the match itself... Like we were talking about this, it it was very strange, at least to me and I think to us, that even the betting lines and things like that were putting this at such an even keel. And, you know, by the end of it, like by the ma- morning of the match in Australia, you had Rod Laver even, um, you know, giving his two cents on this topic about how Medvedev really had like, you know, a real shot at pulling off this upset. Mm, really. So I, I don't know like where the, the hype started or how it got at this point what looks like was inflated right how Mm -hmm. it became so crazy that Medvedev would have a clean shot at it but I think it had to do with doubts about Djokovic's form if he would be able to play at his top level like he has the past eight times that he's won the tournament and I don't know like we were saying maybe Medvedev's comments about the pressure being on Djokovic and not him did play into it you know I think people really talked him up as being like this mental giant Um, you know, this kind of tennis genius, chess-type strategist in the game. Not to say he isn't. I think he does play a brilliant game. But yeah, what ends up happening is, um, yeah, today it just didn't didn't seem to fully click. The first set was a little bit surprising. So it was 3-0. And then 
Medvedev immediately clawed three games back. Then it was really close. Looked like it was headed to a tiebreaker. Then kind of out of nowhere, you know, he he drops the first set. There were some weird interactions with the crowd, but nothing that ended up, you know, changing the outcome, I don't think, at that point. And then the second set, same kind of thing. Medvedev had the early break there, but then Djokovic got it back. And you kind of had this feeling that the match was, like, progressing faster than than you would have expected it to because you're looking for the long rallies. But I think if you if you sort of, I don't know, read between the lines of the match, Djokovic was doing two big things in my mind. He was trying to keep the points shorter by playing aggressive, by pulling drop shots, net play. And then secondarily, he was serving just extremely well. So, I mean, aside from the few breaks that he gave up, I thought his tee serves were really good today, like they were the whole tournament. I saw a statistic that he had 100 aces in the tournament going into this match, which is the most he's ever had. And I guess that's been an influence of Ivanisevic, Goran, his coach, um, on his game, getting him more to that point. And then, yeah, I mean, by the time the third set rolled around, it was, I felt like Medvedev was kind of into that. He had to try to pull stuff out of the bag, you know, to win the match. And then what I thought was really interesting, not even to win, to get back in it. um, What was really interesting is that when Medvedev raised his level and really started pushing Djokovic on the court in the 20, 30 shot rallies, Djokovic pretty much showed up there. I mean, he didn't buckle. He didn't crack. I mean, sometimes, you know, players can get tight even the best of them but he he really didn't at all and that's what i think made that third set so tricky and you just proved where he's at mentally right now so that was my view on it what what did you think about the performance of djokovic or medvedev i mean did you see a moment where it looked like medvedev could have gotten a foot in the door um well i mean after the first set no the first set, I, I agree, it did look like Medvedev came out a little bit nervous. He dropped the first three games, like you said, but then he got into that same Medvedev form that we had seen him play at for uh, months now and that everyone kind of expected him to play at. So everybody's like, oh, okay, here we go. Here's the match. We're even at three all here. Um, but then Djokovic kind of sneaked, snuck that one away at the end after the first set, and then he he just never looked back. I, I agree with a lot of your points. Um, I kind of saw the same things. There was not a lot to see in this match because it was over so quick and it was so one-sided. It was just one-way traffic the entire way. Djokovic served probably the best he's ever served in his entire career, which I think moving forward for him as a player is going to help him a lot when it comes down to him getting a little bit older and needing to shorten these points a little bit. We've seen players like Rafa do this with Carlos Moya coming in as his new coach a couple years back. The first thing he did was he wanted to really beef up his serve so that he didn't have to play those grinding rallies that he's so famous for because quite honestly, he just can't hang with the 22 and the 23-year-olds as as much as he used to. So the fact that Joker can turn it up that notch on his serve is really, uh, really huge for his game. Medvedev, I, I concur, he needed to draw out some of these points a little bit more. That would favor him. He had a relatively easy uh, semi-final win against Tsitsipas in straight sets. Granted, Djokovic did as well, and he had one more day rest. But the age factor, I think, would have played as well as... Um, potentially maybe even the injury that Djokovic had in his oblique could have played more of a a role had Medvedev pushed him a little bit harder, but he never really got the chance, whether it be his mental edge or it it's tough to tell. It really just didn't look like his day. You know, that's what they say. His unforced errors were probably higher. I'm just guessing here, probably higher in that match than any of the other 20 matches in the win streak that he had. 
He's just, he just couldn't get himself into those rallies. And Djokovic, he did what he does, and that's where he hunkers down. He gets the balls back. He waits for his opportunity. That he steps in the baseline, and then he 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 takes um, he takes the shot away from you. And he he executed that perfectly. I think Medvedev, although he said as much that there's no pressure on him, all the pressure is on Djokovic. It it just from the eye test in my mind, it looked like he didn't necessarily believe that in that match. He obviously was yelling at his box the whole third set. He was he kind of knew it was over at that point. I think we'll we'll see where he goes from here. I definitely think this is a huge tournament for him. Regardless, he doesn't have his best his best Grand Slam coming up in the French Open, but um, and we it'll. It'll be tough to tell because we haven't seen what he can do on grass in the last two years. But um, it'll be interesting to see how he finishes off these hard court tournaments with, you know, hopefully Miami happening. Um, and I, I, I think Indian Wells is still happening. I think Indian Wells is canceled, unfortunately. Okay. Um, yeah, I think so. So, anyways, yeah, it'll be it'll be good to see how he bounces back from this. But it just it was never really a match in my mind. It just looked like Djokovic all the way, except for maybe the first six games. I think it just comes down to this is Djokovic's final. And I'm glad that we had talked about this beforehand because you knew I was like, I don't know why everybody's picking Medvedev. <laughs> Djokovic has, in eight tries, he has never given us one reason to think that he's not going to win this final. And he went out there and he did exactly what he did those eight other times, even more so. So, uh, yeah, overall kind of a a bitter pill to swallow from a fan's point of view because of all the hype that surrounded this match and um you know i'd 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 hoped it'd go a little bit further be a little bit closer of a match but it is what it is and uh good for Djokovic. he's now at 18 he's that's that's all he's playing for now is grand slams and the world number one so you knew he was going to bring it today yeah i think um believe it was already sealed but with that win too i think in mid-march now he'll also take over the record for a number of weeks at number one so he continues to to stake his claim there you know kind of tying off records one at a time and gets within two now of the slam count it'll be very interesting to see what happens the rest of this year you know if he can ride that momentum wave I mean, he's he's got a good shot at it, right? As for the next steps for Medvedev, I mean, I personally really enjoy watching him playing because his strokes are super unorthodox. And sometimes I think even they don't make from a physics sense. standpoint, they don't really seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's crazy. He, I mean, the comments he generates in that regard, I don't think are that different from what... Um, people used to say about Rafa in the early Mm -hmm. days with the way that he ripped the ball from a topspin perspective. Um, It's not similar to the way that Medvedev plays, but it was sort of bizarre and new in a way that's almost impossible to mimic. And Medvedev's even more so. I don't know how you contort your body into some of the positions he does. So I think my point there is it's it's a lot of fun to watch him play with that style, but you wonder what the sustainability level of it will be. You know, I mean, he's He's known for being the the big baseliner, the backboard kind of player. Today, for some reason, that didn't show up. It was a he was kind of you know breaking down in that department, arguably because he's playing against a better backboard player, right? I mean, Djokovic is the best backboard of all time, basically, because he isn't just a backboard. He's sort of a 
strategically placed one where he can be in the right place at the right time and always hit the shot back that he needs to without, you know, Mm -hmm. openly ripping winners. But I I think definitely all all credit to Djokovic, of course. I think he did a good job also of picking apart the weakness of um, Medvedev's front game or coming to the net. He did not have a lot of success there. Anytime that Djokovic was at the net, Medvedev pretty much made an error. Um, it just, the timing there really seemed to rattle him and Djokovic did a lot of that for sure on purpose. And like you said, the errors were huge. So I think that ended up being the, the main staple today, but I also would have expected something a little bit closer, you know, especially given Medvedev's final at the U S open a couple of years ago against Rafa, you know, he had the, the firepower to stay in that one. I just think the, the tactic in this match and the errors in the end were too, too much. Right. I, I kept holding out hope. And I remember texting you during the match that, you know, he came, he, I, th- I think he was down a break in that third set to Nadal at the 2019 US Open. And he came back from that, won the set, and then he went on to win the next set as well before finally falling. And so I was like, well, maybe he can somehow pull this back. But I think at the end of the day, Djokovic was just too mentally strong and Medvedev kind of slipped in that department. And that's one of the things that we really haven't seen from these young guys is how they can handle a best of five final after playing two weeks worth of tennis, how they can hang in there mentally. And I think Medvedev is obviously he's right there. And I think everyone sees that. And that's why they thought he could maybe make that hurdle in this final. But he fell just a little bit short here, but he he he's right there and he'll make it someday. Um, and I think that someday will be soon. So it's just a matter of time. Um, but just Djokovic too good on this one. Definitely. All right. So we have a guest appearance here from the Bracket Challenge winner, Sam. And uh, she's going to say a few words for us and give us a victory speech. Hey, Ben. Hey, Evan. Thanks so much. Um, it's a real honor for me to win. And uh, I worked really hard on my bracket. I have to say it's the first tennis bracket I've ever completed in my entire life. So it feels really good to win. I want to thank my husband, especially for, you know, preparing the bracket for me, you know, like giving me the blank spaces so I could fill it in. <laughs> and uh, I have to say my strategy was, you know, I always I thought for sure Djokovic was going to win. So I just kind of put him all the way through and then players that I really knew, like Team, for example, Tsitsipas, Nadal, all the big guys, you know, I put them next. And then as far as like the first few rounds go, went, I mean, there were a lot of players I had no idea of. So I just kind of like liked, you know, one name better over the other. And that strategy really worked out for me. So I'm excited to participate in more brackets uh, challenges against you and Ben, and uh, maybe I will go undefeated. We will see. Thanks. Thanks, Samantha, for those comments, and we look forward to your participation in the future. Now we're moving on to our next segment, the Moldy Take of the Week, or in this case, the Moldy Take of the entire Australian Open 2021 tournament. Just as a brief recap, this is the segment where we take a look at the calls we made in our last podcast and decide which one did not pan out so well, did not pan out according to plan. The nominations since the last podcast come in as follows. Um, First up, we've got my non-bracket pick, where I said that Rafa might have a clear path to victory, you know, given the circumstances. He ended up losing to Tsitsipas pretty shortly thereafter, and Djokovic ended up not being hurt at all. The second nomination is essentially just allowing Samantha to participate in the bracket challenge, period. I, I don't see how that benefited either of us, but, you know, the more the merrier. 
And the first or the, the, the next nomination, Evan, was your pick of Rublev making it through con- considerably further than he than he actually did. Those are the, the nominations we have so far. Um, Evan, do you want to take it away with uh, who is who is winning the moldy take of the week? Absolutely. So after careful consideration, we've tallied all the ballots and the winner of the moldy take of the week, Australian Open 2021, is my pick of Rublev to make it to the final. (laughs) I know everyone listening was thinking, what are you what are you thinking? essentially and eh, i wasn't what were you thinking man <laughs> what was i thinking that's, a, that's some song it's not i've never heard that song <laughs> <Yeah>. oh okay <laughs> i'm gonna put it in there <laughs> um yeah, i think sure you're safe <laughs> told you <laughs> okay anyway i think the the real moly take of the week here was picking rublev over medvedev you know that's the one that that really just was not smart on my part at all it would have it would have looked great had he won so sometimes you got to throw that hail mary pass or take that half court buzzer beater shot but it just didn't pan out for me on this one so if you're keeping score at home we are now one to one yeah, Ben versus Evan in the moldy take of the week column. Unfortunately, mine is the moldy take of the entire tournament, but uh, still batting 500 here. Um, so <laughs> That was just a timing. That was just a timing problem. Yeah. yeah, it was a timing problem, but I'll own up to it. It was my own fault for picking Rublev, but in a, in a, in a weird way, I, I'm humbled by the experience. So thank you. All right, so now that we've wrapped up the tournament final, we've wrapped up the Moldy Take of the Week tournament, we're going to take a step back and look at the tournament as a whole and talk about some of our takeaways from the tournament. One thing that has been thrown around a lot, especially now that Djokovic has won his ninth Australian Open title, he's won nine finals, the nine finals that he's been in, uh, where do you think this stacks up compared to Rafa's Roland Garros record? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's kind of like the, these are two records, which I don't know if you can compare them to each other because they're different surfaces. They're different times of the season, totally different game styles. But the dominance is pretty, pretty um, similar, I would say. I mean, I don't know who else you would in the end compare, you know, nine wins at the Australian Open to, if not the 12 or whatever it is that Rafa has at Roland Garros, right? So I do think it's comparable. The piece that's interesting for me, more at a technical level without getting too much into it, is um, Rafa is obviously dominant on Roland Garros because of the way his game translates to clay, right? So massive spin has a different effect there. Djokovic's game style in terms of being a really reliable baseliner who can run pretty much everything down and kind of treats the hardcourt as if it were clay is is not obviously something unique to uh, the hardcourts at the Australian Open other than the surfaces are maybe a little faster. I think it also has something to do with the way that he starts seasons and the way that he continues momentum through the end of the hardcourt swing that's always coming from the end of the season before and rolls with that 
very well into the beginning of the season at the Australian Open. So I do think, you know, he uh, he obviously has quite a, a block there now for any player to challenge him. So I don't know. I think it's interesting. Maybe the last point from my view is um, a lot of people, not a lot of people were making that comparison up until this point. I think that's now becoming a lot more of an obvious statement, you know, that he's won it so many times. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I I agree with you and kind of echo your sentiments there. I think Rafa at this point in his Roland Garros career, he's he's gotten a as far as anyone will ever get, right? I don't think he's got anything left to prove there. I think Djokovic, obviously, from a numbers perspective, he can get closer to Rafa in terms of Australian Open finals, Australian Open titles and wins. But if, let's say, Rafa wins Roland Garros this year, I don't think it's going to take the conversation away from Djokovic at the Australian Open being any easier, if that makes sense. So I think Djokovic could still make the case more so in this comparison, but but Rafa, we we know he's already set the benchmark. He's already set the standard. I think they're not quite the same thing. Djokovic has been pushed to five sets in the Australian Open final. He's had close ones. He's lost at Australia much more than Nadal has lost at the French. Looking at it from That's a true. whole, yeah. That's true. Rafa's only been in two five setters at Roland Garros, just two in his entire career. So it, I do think it is a different beast, but it's right there as the second hardest thing to do in the sport is beat Djokovic at the Australian Open. I think it's it's reached that level. The comparison used to be Federer at Wimbledon, Djokovic at the Australian Open, but I think he's officially now kind of cemented it being a little bit harder to to take him down. Uh, Federer has his losses at Wimbledon in the finals. You know, this conversation could change depending on how long Djokovic plays. He could lose. The next three finals he plays and who knows so if that happens then we might be bringing it back to the fed comparison but i think in terms of him compared to rafa he's not quite there yet he could still potentially get there but um at this point in time i'm not sure he's he's quite at that level okay so another big surprise out of this tournament was the rise of king aslan the lion making it in his first grand slam draw all the way to the semifinals. Do you think this was somewhat of a fluke due to injuries or the nature of the tournament? Do you think Aslan has um, any kind of game to build upon and and take this further in his career? Or or is this one of those one-off, one-hit wonder kind of moments for him? So I do think Karatsev played at a level that deserved to get him to the semifinal of a major throughout most of the tournament. I mean, he played some really great tennis against some really great players that he pushed around pretty pretty strongly on the court. With that being said, if you if I had to make a bet on whether or not Karatsev would make the semifinals of a major again, then it gets a little more tricky because I'm honestly not I'm not sure. I mean, if he played as well as he did for a good chunk of the tournament, I think he could be a routine second week player. But he's he's kind of this like historical anomaly almost though because of what he did here as a qualifier what he did in the situation like you said given that there were injuries and the whole corona scenario 
Um, I don't think that takes away much, though, from what, what he achieved there. I think he, that would have been a big accomplishment either way. I'm, I'm not sure, though, how it will pan out for him the rest of the season. I mean, he obviously will be a contender. His ranking will continue to shoot through the roof now. But this whole scenario was kind of a, a one-off in that regard. So we don't have a lot of past experience to go off of to say, like, oh, yeah, you know, Karatsev is going to do that at every Grand Slam now. He's going to be capable of it. I do know that he's got a strong clay game, so his game unlike some of the other big baseliners does convert well to clay he did play a lot on the challenger tour leading up to it on clay tournaments made a lot of finals and even won some tournaments in that regard so maybe if we take that past experience it could be a good predictor of you know what he's capable of on different surfaces but um yeah i don't know in any case either for me it was really cool to see a player with that much of an underdog story really make it that far i thought that was great and i really love the way that he plays tennis his like take no prisoners, destroy the ball approach is awesome. I think it's great. So I'm really curious to see how he does the rest of the season. Do you think he'll have a shot or what do you, do you think it was a fluke in that regard? I don't think it was a fluke in that regard. I definitely think that Aslan deserved to be in that semifinal. Um, he played the quality of tennis that was required to get to the semifinal. His game translated very well to the quick courts, which are the quickest we've seen at the Australian Open. So the timing could not have been better for him. I think that played a part. And he even said as much that his game was starting to hit his stride when all the shutdowns started happening. So he himself felt like he was getting to maybe another level. So the fact that everything shut down and then he was able to come back still bring back that level that he felt like he was reaching and kind of surprise everybody with it he he kind of took everybody off guard and that's what made him such a fun story to watch and it's great when you see things like that because it's just it's from a fan's perspective it's it's incredible to see a cinderella like that the crowd being back at this tournament was a hundred percent behind him it was so much fun to see them push him all the way into the semifinal and and you know looking at it from a scoreline give Djokovic a better fight than Medvedev even so who would have thought that out of all the Russians in that tournament he would have performed debatably better than his two compatriots but you know I think as I had mentioned earlier he kind of had this breakout nobody literally everyone was talking about how they did not even know who he was for the most part and i think that played a big advantage for him as well because we see things like this happen in american football where a rookie will come in highly toted out of college or whatever he'll he'll start on the team and there's no tape there's no matches you can really watch on him you don't know how to play him so if he comes out with a strong aggressive style like Aslan has and you can take him by surprise on that you can kind of sweep the rug out from under them then I or that gave him a huge advantage as well um so he's not going to have that moving forward which will hurt him but I do think his game is much better than where was he 114 in the world something like that he should be at around 50 uh, moving forward just from this tournament alone so he's going to start making it into main draws i heard he's playing doha dubai and miami so we're going to get to see a lot of aslan moving forward and we're kind of see what kind of form he can bring into those tournaments and i'm definitely excited to watch him but yeah i agree i i'm not sure if he's quite a consistent semifinal or maybe even quarterfinal contender at this point. Yeah, that's true. But these next three, especially on hard courts, will be great to see how he does there. I think we'll get a better feel for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And that was a good point about him on clay. That's something I, again, I don't know him either, so I didn't know his clay game. So it could be interesting to see how he does um, 
on that surface because that clay is a big equalizer for a lot of guys so that could be a huge opportunity for him as well yeah he's a good mover and he is able to use his flat ball on clay so could be something to to watch who knows i mean that could that could make a difference okay kind of the last point we have here is the americans and how they fared at this tournament do you think this was promising for american tennis looking at this tournament as a whole we had uh Mackenzie McDonald making a little bit of a run. Uh, Fritz gave Djokovic a little bit of a battle. But what do you think in terms of the red, white, and blue on this one? Sure. So I'm actually feeling very optimistic about the outlook of American tennis. Um, If you use this tournament as an example of what the future looks like, I read something recently that summed up the amount of losses that American players had to guys who were not the big three and the rest of contenders, even top 10 players sometimes. And in general, the record that American men have against the rest of the draw is actually pretty good. Um, it's just that it's it's terrible against the big three. Not to say that they're, you know, wrecking the draw every single time for all American players, but you can kind of see it here throughout the match or throughout the tournament itself. I mean, obviously a guy like Michael Moe getting through to this scenario for the first time is not going to take out Rafa. Djokovic is not going to lose to Tiafo um, or to Fritz this time. Um, and in a lot of scenarios, you know, we have Americans playing each other and then one of them obviously has to win and move forward. But yeah, I thought between, you know, the performance and the response that Tiafo had, even after the Djokovic loss, um, Tommy Paul had a good run again. Like you said, McDonald had a really good turnout. I thought it was a good first run for Mo Opelka. I mean, versus Fritz in the first round, that's a little bit of a tricky draw as it is, right? That's not what we would want to see for the Americans lining up together. Then, I mean, you did have Tennis Sangren dropping out early. He's usually a little streaky back and forth. But I think in general, as you look, for me, as you look towards the players that are going to start phasing out, right? So the big three at some point are going to be gone. And the rest of American tennis is still really young and I think really capable. And I think this tournament actually showed in the first couple of rounds where these guys are at. So I'm hopeful that going forward, maybe not this season um, and maybe not in, you know, the next two years will we see a really breakout, you know, a grand slam winner or something like that. But I am confident that there's at least a good field out there now. And the last point I was thinking on is um, it'll be interesting to see what the Mackenzie McDonald story has in terms of collegiate level players using that experience in division one tennis and then moving up afterwards to play at the at the main draw. I mean, you've got guys like um, Kupfer also, who's a German, but played in the U.S. collegiate tennis and then went pro. So I think maybe that will start to prove itself as more and more of a farm system as opposed to, you know, the traditional tennis camps and the elite academies where you're turning out, you know, just a pure tennis focus. Maybe D1 universities in the U.S. will also start to put some of these players in winning positions. I'm interested to see how that turns out. But yeah, how do you feel about the Americans after this year's tournament? Yeah, that'll be interesting to see for sure. Um, There's not a lot of players that have come out of there that have had a ton of success other than maybe John Isner and Kevin Anderson are the two names that really come to mind when it comes to collegiate tennis and and playing at the highest level. But you're much more optimistic than me when it comes to the American, (laughs) the American tennis, this tournament didn't, didn't really give me a whole lot. Uh, Like you said, we can, we can look back at this in two years and maybe we'll have somebody that will have, will have, broken through or is on the cusp of breaking through 
uh, there's a couple of young guys I got my eye on. We've talked about Korda before. There's also this Brandon Nakashima who is 19 and he's right outside the top hundred. He's got, he's got a solid game. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they play once they start getting into these types of draws and they start playing this kind of talent routinely. And then we, we've got players like Fritz and Opelka who have kind of established themselves, um, but they are still pretty young and they're like 22, 23 years old. But I think they're solid top 20 players or at least in the top 25 and they can be for a consistent basis. So we'll see if they can maybe add something uh, to their game moving forward. I think it's going to take a lot of dedication. There's a lot of young guys they're competing against right now to get to that next level. Because it's really the battle of, you know, three old guys and then everybody else kind of in that younger age range. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how the Americans fare in the next couple years because we're starting to see, like you said, a changing of the guard here with Isner probably on his way out soon, Query probably on his way out soon. Those are two staples that Americans have always had. Um, and now we're going to see people like Fritz, Opalka establish himself, hopefully Tiafo can establish himself. I like his game too. But then also some very young guys like Korda and Nakashima potentially. Yeah, I think the the last good thing that I see for American tennis in general is just the... I think it's really positive that there's that many guys playing inside the top 100 and inside the top 50 still. And I feel like there's more and more names coming up now who are looking more positive, who... I mean, it, it's tough to say it this way, but it, at the current level of competition with the top 10, and especially with great champions, I, I just don't, obviously, it's going to be a while until the draw in general overcomes those guys and the history that they're leaving there. But then looking forward, I mean, then you've got, obviously, other really young, um, deep groups in in the Russians. Um, Italy has some young players coming up as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how those age ranges match up with where the Americans are at. And I'm, I'm positive and optimistic there that they'll have, you know, the depth and, you know, a lot of different players who could break through. So I'm interested to see what happens in the next phase. All righty. Now we're going to take a very brief look at the upcoming ATP 250s taking place starting from Monday, February 22nd, going through just this upcoming week. So we've got a ATP 250 in France. I believe it's in Montpellier, although I would just say Mont Montpellier. And uh, there we've got Bautista Gu, Humbert, Goffin, Corino Busta, Corda Sinner, Kyrgios, Gasquet, and Sanga playing. It's a really great lineup, actually, filled with a bunch of guys that could beat each other. So super interesting, I think, that one. Uh, we also have one in Argentina in Cordoba. So a lot of local guys playing there. Schwartzman, Pelep, Benoit Pair is flying out to South America, apparently. So maybe he's going to one-up his 23 double faults in one match. Would be pretty interesting. <laughs> I think Ramos Vignolas is playing that one, too. Then there's also a tournament taking place in Singapore. So a lot of players sticking on the Australasian swing there. Felix OJ Aliassim remains in the hunt. His uh, devastating rival, Dan Evans, will also be there. Casper Rude, Manorino, Milman, Chilich, Ishioka, and Michael Moe is hanging out there as well. Evan, what's your take on these great 250s that are coming up? And would you be daring to make any predictions in them blindly ahead of the week? Yeah, I these would be stabs in the dark and I will definitely take some stabs here, but uh, nobody hold my feet to the fire and I don't want to be up for the moldy take of the week on some of these picks. I know it's going to be the only <laughs> thing we have, but 
<laughs> I just feel like it's going to come back to bite me when we uh, when we start looking at this uh, next week after these tournaments have ended. But Montpellier, that's good. I've always just pronounced it Montiplier. I don't know why my stupid brain just recognizes it as Montiplier. But yeah, this tournament Montpellier. Mont- Montpellier. This tournament is stacked. Uh, so that one is actually going to be for a two fifty. That's an incredible field. That'll be a lot of fun to watch. I think if I had to pick a favorite here, I'm looking back at Sinner again because he was in really good form winning his winning that. I forget what turn is the Grand River, Great River Open, something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. One of the lead ups, Melbourne lead ups. One of the Melbourne lead ups right before the Australian Open. And I think he's probably going to carry that, you know, and when he lost in Australia, he lost to Shapovalov in five. So he, it's not like he, bowed out by not being informed or anything like that so i think he's going to carry that into this tournament i think people to watch are curios obviously um but he's much more volatile at the 250 level than he is at a grand slam level let's say so i'm hesitant to put him as my favorite i think pcb and rba are obviously strong established talents here but just going off of their form at the australian open PCB pulled out, um, so we're not sure if he's going to play. And then um, an RBA, I think, just the way that he went out in the Australian Open, maybe he's not 100% in form. So I, I, I'm i leaning towards Sinner in this one. I'm really excited to watch Korda, see how he kind of does. He was he did well mm-hmm, at Delray Beach, definitely. making the final against her catch, uh, going down to him there. But he is bringing some of his best tennis already this year, so it'll be good to see how he how he plays this one. Umber is also a very good player, and he is a solid choice to win this as well. Um, and then Saga coming back from injury. We're, this is the first we're going to see him play in, in a while. Oh, and then also, I heard Murray is playing this tournament. I think this is his first one back. I believe he is. I know he's playing Rotterdam. I, he pulled out of some of them, but I think he is playing this one too, okay. and I just don't have him on the list. I think he is, yeah. I wasn't sure if you mentioned him. He was the last... Um, the last I heard, he was playing this uh, that's one. That's true. So he... Do I think he's going to win? No, but it'll be um, a lot of fun to see what kind of form he can bring and where, where he can go from this tournament. We'll see. We'll kind of get a picture on where he's at with that one. Then in Argentina, Cordoba Open. This one is not such a, uh, a stacked field. Obviously, with a clay court tournament like this, I'm looking at Schwartzman probably uh, to make the most noise. I've got him as my pick to win it. Pela obviously likes the clay as well. Ramos Vanola, all, all these players are playing because of the clay court, so they they have a, they have good results on clay. Um, but I got Schwartzman in that one. Singapore is interesting because I believe this is the first time this tournament has been played. It's on like a one year lease, so there's really nothing to draw hmm. past results on from this one. But just looking at the picture they have on ATP.com, it looks beautiful. <laughs> like Singapore is incredible. Yeah, we got to line up a trip to Singapore. I think uh, yeah. that could be in the cards for us. I would 100% be down for that. If they can get this tournament going, I don't know if they're going to continue after this year, but that would be a really fun one to go to. Um, Felix, obviously I like him to lose in the final in this one. And then I've got <laughs> the, <laughs> um, this one has a little bit of an older crowd. We've got Manorino, Melman, Chilich in here, Evans. I'm really interested to see how Casper Ruud There's a lot does. of 250 veterans in there. Yeah. I'm really in- interested to see how Casper Ruid does here. I know he's primarily a clay court player, but he had a decent showing at the Australian Open. He had to, he pulled out against Rublev, but he was 
he was in a battle with Rublev there for yeah. a little while. Another one of the abdominal guys, right? But he's a very good player. Yeah, yeah. Interesting to see. He's a great young talent. I like his game a lot. Um, and I like Nishioka as well, but he really screwed me in the Australian Open, so I'm not going near that guy. <laughs> so, um, uh, my moldy take of the week: the country of Japan. <laughs> And then my moldy take of the week was picking all the Japanese players to win their first round matchups, and I don't think a single one did. Um, I don't know. I guess let's just see if Rude can win this one. I'd pick Felix, but he's 0 7 in finals, so I'm going with Rude on this one. Could be a moldy take of the week, but that's that's where I'm landing. That's my Hail Mary. Very good. In France, um, I'm also very excited to see Corda play. I think Sinner's probably the favorite. I'll go with the hometown boy and the young guy, Humbert. Maybe he's got a shot. Yeah, Schwartzman totally agree. In Argentina and in Singapore, I'll back. I'll back Ocealiasim. It's the field is even enough. He he can beat all of those players. So, like you said, it's just a matter of him converting in the final. I feel like, I, yeah, I honestly feel like if if he doesn't get it there, then you know, the the pressures the pressure is real at that point. But it's got to be tough when you're up against the likes of Sinner, who has already got two of them. You know, and oh, it's brutal. Right. Right. But I think that does take us into our closing trivia rounds. <laughs> Cue all of the soundboard activity. <laughs> In case you guys haven't noticed, we now have a soundboard on the podcast here. So we've been having a little bit of fun with it. We still need to figure out some of the extra sounds to add. But if it sounds a little disjointed, that's because we're just getting used to it. Feel free to write your suggestions in the comments. If we got even a comment, I would be shocked. So that would be awesome. <laughs> Maybe someday retroactively somebody will comment. I'll ju- I'm just throwing it out there for comments. My favorite are stale, crusty memes from like 2015. So if you can find some, what are those? I'm, I'm all about those. Or SpongeBob <laughs> sound effects. Yeah, if you recommended anything from SpongeBob, I'd probably accept it. So, Evan, trivia round two. The goodness, gotta get some additional soundboard activity going on here. Trivia round two. You correctly answered the Joe Wilfried Sangha question earlier. Congratulations and well done. We're gonna continue with the Sangha theme. No, that's not good. In this one, Joe Wilfried Sangha. At the 2007 Australian Open, he won a tiebreaker 20-18 to 18 in one of the sets in a first-round match, but he eventually went on to lose that match itself. Who was his opponent in this first-round 2007 match? Oh, man. I can't even hazard a guess at this one. Um, do, do, can I ask for some hints? Is this player ranked? This player is ranked. Uh, this this uh, this player was ranked. Is he is he still active? This player is no longer active. No longer active. Oh gosh. Okay. So that puts Lubchich back on the board. Um, <laughs> take Lubchich off. The take board. Lubchich. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Coconox is probably too young. Dude's still in middle school. <laughs> um. Okay. So let's say he was ranked. He's no longer active. Would it be too big of a, a hint to tell me his ranking? His ranking at the time? At the time. Do you remember? Is it like top 10? He was t- he was top 10 at the time. Yes. 
Okay. Top 10 at the time. 2007. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Nikolai Davidenko. Oh, that is a good guess, um, but it's not correct. I think if I give you one more hint, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure you'll get it. Dang it! Yeah, that stings, right. doesn't it? That's too bad. I I will tell you this: he's he's an American. Oh. Okay. In 2007. 2007. Ranked in the top ten. Top ten. Okay, so it's either Andy Roddick or James Blake, uh, most likely. So I, I it's got to be Roddick, right? It it is Andy Roddick. It was Andy Roddick. Yes. Yep. That's the one. <laughs> Should have known you would have pulled out a Roddick question. I know. I know. This one is a little bit trickier. <laughs> um, it was a, it was a crazy thing. So I guess this was like um, I th- I think it's specific to the Australian Open, but it's the longest in match tiebreaker that's taken place there so far. And Tsonga won the first set tiebreaker 20 to 18 and then lost the rest of the match. He went on to lose in a second tiebreaker and then three and three. And then Roddick went through after that. I I think this was, no, it might've been too early. I can't remember if it was 07 or 09 where Roddick played Djokovic in the second week and Djokovic retired due to some heat issues. I actually, I think I remember that and it was 07. Because I remember, I think it was 2007. Yeah, I remember watching that match and thinking, um, "Yeah, yeah." I just, I vaguely remember that. Okay, interesting to look back with the return of Sanga here. Um, you know where he was at. You know, 10, 12 years ago. It'll be really, really cool to see him back playing. But now, since keeping with the ATP 250s team and theme, and also with the Andy Roddick theme, this one's just a straight up multiple choice question. So, Andy Roddick. How many ATP 250 titles has he won in his career? The options are as uh, follows. A, okay. 5 to 10, B, 10 to 15, or C, 20 to 25? 20 to 25. Oh, you're being generous. You're giving me ranges and only three options. So I'm going to feel bad if I get this wrong. Andy Roddick, I know he... Um... Yeah, this is like the ACT. Yeah, he used to he used to play a lot of those like he'd play like Atlanta, um, Indianapolis when they had that tournament and he'd win those pretty routinely. So I think he's got a fair number under his belt. Um see twenty to twenty five sounds like a lot, but I think I'm gonna go with my gut and say that I think he's got a lot of them under his belt, so C twenty to twenty five. Nice. He does have C, 20 to 25. He actually has 21 ATP 250 titles throughout his career that he won. That brings us to the end of trivia, and the end of trivia brings us to the end of our show for you today. As always, thanks so much for listening to the Changeover Podcast. Be sure to tune in next week where we preview the absolutely stacked Rotterdam tournament, review some of the 250s we talked about here today, and inevitably try out some new soundboard effects. I'm Evan, along with Ben, and we... Hope you have a great rest of the day. Luke.